Welcome to the Unsettled Lives podcast. On this podcast, we'll be dusting off the history of Black communities in America. This bi-weekly podcast is about unearthing the hidden narratives of land loss, urban renewal, disinvestment, and gentrification among Black Americans. Welcome, welcome. My name is Celia Burke. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Unsettled Lies this week, which is the week of the winter solstice. And that means that after that solstice passes, we are on our way to longer and brighter days. But of course, as you know, it's going to take some time. So I'm going to continue to encourage you to take good care of yourself because you need it. We all need it. I don't know about you, but the grief has been super heavy these days. There is a lot going on personally for me, I'm sure also for many of you, and collectively. And the dreariness of winter doesn't really help. And so have you talked to a neighbor today? I'm gonna keep asking that question. I recently shared an NPR article about how to be a good neighbor on the Unsettled Lives Instagram page. And it shared some really good tips around how to build relationships with your neighbor, how to do that as an adult, and the benefits of starting your children on that journey at a young age. And I thought it was just perfect timing because I had just thought about asking this question to you all and this article popped up and I just loved it because I'm asking you this question and I'm asking myself this question. And um, additionally, the other neighborly uh, kind of good feeling thing that I've enjoyed recently is the Sesame Street documentary on HBO. It's called Street Gang. And it's very nostalgic and comforting for those of us who um, were privileged to watch Sesame Street as children. And it reminds me of these, albeit cartoonish neighborhood relationships that we can build um, through the the puppets, through the puppets that are used to teach children and to teach them about so many different things, Um, whether it's your ABCs or whether it's talking about really difficult things going on in the world. And your real neighbors can do that too. So that's a bright spot. If you can access that, I definitely would say watch it. In the midst of this grief that I've been feeling, I just couldn't focus on the research for the topic I was originally gonna talk about today because it was just a little too heavy. I imagine there are going to be many weeks where I just need to shift to something a little bit lighter and I'm gonna honor that. But I'm gonna work to get something for you anyway, regardless of what's going on, unless it's just absolutely not possible 
Honor what your body is telling you folks, especially now. I needed something this week with a bit of, I guess we'll call it a happy ending, but it's also the beginning of something too. What we're talking about today is Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach, California. You may have seen it being talked about on the news this year and last year on various platforms. And I don't know about y'all, but I thought at first that this black family owned a whole beach, <laughs> but that's not how it works. And I learned that through the research I've done. And it's really interesting to think about land ownership in this context, especially as I shift us to do land acknowledgements. And I want us to acknowledge that the area we're talking about today is the land of the Tongva and Keech peoples, both of whom identify as Gabrielinos, as both were enslaved and forced to build the Mission de San Gabriel Archangel, Mission of San Gabriel by the Spanish in the 18th century. These people are deeply rooted to the area we now call Los Angeles County. I've recently had the pleasure of listening to people from other nations in California speak during some webinars at my job. And in case you didn't all know, California is very, very indigenous. It was pre-contact and it is now. So I'm going to share the links to the Tongva and Keech nations, but totally encourage you to explore the entire indigenous history and present in this state. Even the states we consider to be very liberal or left politically in the US just have so much to reckon with. You'll see as we continue. On a personal note, I am not a Californian myself, but my life is filled with Californians. Both my parents were raised in the Sacramento area, and I have a lot of extended family up and down the state, including in and around Los Angeles, where the story takes place. It's beautiful. I love the beach. I love the mountains. I don't think there's any place we can call a racial haven in the United States. So I would just say black folks, if you can find a somewhat safe place to be with good weather, you should do that. Kidding, but also not kidding. Anyway, we're talking about a place in the city of Manhattan Beach, California, which is in the South Bay area of LA County. I actually went to a restaurant in Manhattan Beach and walked along the beach there during sunset during a work trip. I thought it was beautiful, but I really just like the beach a lot generally. I also thought it was incredibly bougie. And y'all just for context, I'm bougie in a very sort of granola, I only want natural things way. But this was like wealth. And I remember thinking very casually, ain't no black people living here. And I didn't really see any either. And here I am five years later talking about a black family who was literally driven off their land there. Let's start from the beginning. Bruce's Beach is named after its former owners, Willa and Charles Bruce, a black couple from Albuquerque, New Mexico 
who were part of a wave of Black folks moving west during the Great Migration in the early 20th century. Willow worked as a cook and Charles was a dining cart chef on a train from Los Angeles to Salt Lake City, Utah. They saved up their money and bought two 33 by 100 square foot plots in Manhattan Beach in 1912. They became one of the few black owned, if not the only black owned oceanfront property on the West Coast. While properties around there were typically 50 to $100, Willa and Charles ended up paying $1,200. We call this the black tax, and this is a blatant example of it. But they were happy to get their beachfront property. The property was listed in Willa's name because at the time it was harder for black men to buy property. Now, I didn't delve into this any further. This was just a quote I heard. And I'm honestly perplexed because allowing a black woman to buy the property instead is perplexing as rights for women weren't exactly very good either at the time. <laughs> but I digress. Willa, Charles, and their son, Harvey, moved to the area between 1900 and 1910 before purchasing the property on Highland Avenue. They were able to purchase from a white real estate broker who was willing to work with them. And while there weren't any racially restrictive covenants in place at the time, many real estate agents just refused to sell to Black Americans. In the end, Willa and Charles had the rare distinction of owning this property and their home back in Albuquerque as well. Willa also managed the property while Charles continued working on the train. The place started off as Bruce's Lodge and was a pop-up where they sold sodas, lunch, and even bathing suits while also providing a place to wash up. These things were all accessible to Black patrons at Bruce's Lodge unlike the other public beachfront properties, which did not allow Black patrons to use their wash-up areas. This was obviously very exciting because guess what? Black people like the beach too. So this made Bruce's Lodge very popular, and with their business growing, they were able to build more permanent structures, including a two-story building with a downstairs cafe and upstairs dance hall. During this transformation, it became Bruce's Beach, an official resort. This was a place of leisure for Black Americans, which was so rare. But it also offered basic things like bathrooms, which Black Americans were prevented from using at other public institutions. And y'all, this was in a place where there were laws to make things equal. But none of that mattered. And of course, everything that the Bruce's were trying to do was met with opposition from the white residents of Manhattan Beach from the very beginning. One Los Angeles Times headline on June 27, 1912, remember that's the year that they bought the property, had the headline, Colored People's Resort Meets with Opposition. White residents were afraid of a Negro invasion and its impact on their property values. If we want to be really real, Lower property values are only associated with Black people because of systemic racism. It has nothing to do with our behavior or values. It really has just been set up this way. So these folks were mad at the wrong people, but also at the people that they wanted to be mad at because it wasn't just property values that they were worried about. 
white folks in Manhattan Beach really just did not want to be around Black people. What the Bruces were doing was pretty substantial. They offered a safe environment, not only to Black folks, but also mixed company. Remember that most segregated places were separating white spaces from everywhere else. But just because Black folks created a safe space for Black people doesn't mean that other people weren't invited. Black guests would bring their white friends and romantic partners to Bruce's Beach. And to many white neighbors, this was appalling. This was especially egregious to the local KKK. Yes, they were in California too. We'll get back to them in a moment. Black Angelinos, who could afford to buy their own properties, did so around Bruce's Beach, and they built their own small cottages there too. So they were building their own small Black enclave in Manhattan Beach. Here are some of the ways that the neighbors in Manhattan Beach were trying to destroy Bruce's Beach. By the way, though it doesn't really need to be said, I hope, this is not the way to be a good neighbor. Okay. Local landowner and city founder George Peck put no trespassing signs on his land leading up to the water and had two deputies patrolling to make sure that the Black patrons adhered to that. So guests of Bruce's Beach had to walk a half mile around on either side to get to the water without trespassing on Peck's land. But they did it. And that didn't stop Black patrons from loving Bruce's Beach. Many white residents filed complaints with the city and passed ordinances that prevented people from getting dressed and undressed in cars. Truly a beach swimming activity, y'all. Ordinances were also passed to maintain public order and public morals. I'm saying these with air quotes, which again, who is deciding what is orderly and moral. I mean, of course, this can be defined by the people in power who want Black Americans out of Manhattan Beach. The KKK and hell, even private citizens from what I've read, would call Bruce's Beach constantly with death threats and other kinds of threats. The KKK also burned mattresses under the porch of the resort and burned crosses on their property. I also heard about tires being slashed, which in 1912, that was a much bigger deal than it is now. They had those Ford Model Ts and a lot of older cars, and it was just much harder to find a place to get your tires replaced. There were also 10-minute parking meters installed, which are extremely inconvenient. There was a proposal to condemn the Manhattan Beach Northern neighborhood where Black folks were building their beach cottages. But Willa was a fighter. And while she must have been extremely stressed out, to say the least, she didn't back down. This worked for a while. Unfortunately, the white folks didn't back down either. And eventually they succeeded in pushing the city to do something. In 1922, the city condemned Bruce's Beach and sought to seize it using eminent domain because apparently they desperately needed it for a new public park. Just a note, 
Eminent domain is going to come up a lot in these episodes because it was such a slippery way to take Black land while making it look legal and purposeful outside of being, you know, racist. It is defined as the right of the government or its agent to expropriate private property for public use with payment of compensation. So that literally just means taking private property for public use, as long as you pay the property owner. However, often whatever compensation is given is never enough. Willa and Charles fought this to no avail. And in 1924, the land was officially seized by the city. Due to this loss, the Bruces requested $120,000 for the damages, including the stress they endured from racist acts throughout their time there and the loss of the land. But the city gave them $14,500 instead and told them to be on their way. And that money wasn't even officially given to them until 1932. So the Bruces were destitute that entire time with no income from their now closed business. They ended up moving to East LA and worked as cooks and kitchens there after being prominent business owners. According to one of Willa's descendants, she wasn't able to mentally recover from all that had happened. She passed away in 1934 and Charles passed away soon after from complications with rheumatoid arthritis in 1935. And that park that was so desperately needed? Manhattan Beach didn't build that until 30 years later in 1959. It's said that the only reason they even did that was because they were worried about a lawsuit for not building the park when they said that they would. It was interesting because on one of the podcasts that I listened to to do research for this episode, one of the interviewees said that the city was saying, we don't need this land, but we don't want you to have it. And even if they never said that, you know, in a very direct way, that's what they were saying. After the park was added to Bruce's Beach, the property changed hands and was deeded to the state and then finally to Los Angeles County, where it was held until this year. The descendants of the residents who pushed the Bruces off their land no doubt are still benefiting from wealth that their properties have been generating, while the Bruces lost that opportunity, leading to descendants of mixed socioeconomic status, but many at and below the poverty line. A little bit about generational wealth for a moment. I won't get too deep into it because that is a whole another topic and a whole another episode on somebody else's podcast. But it is a huge part of this discussion because we often talk about the American dream and pretend that it is accessible to everyone. It, whole, it always has been, which is not true. We also talk about people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. But then you take away their boots and you expect them, or you pretend to expect them, to still manage to push through all of that. 
how can we keep up as black people? How could our ancestors have kept up? How could we build generational wealth when situations like what happened with the Bruces were fairly common? I'm just grateful that while the Bruces definitely experienced emotional violence, they weren't harmed in a physical way, as far as I understand it. Nobody was killed. But that happened all the time in other parts of the country. And people lost their land. So we can't sit here and keep pretending that this is equal. We can't sit here and keep pretending that this has always been equal. We can't sit here and pretend that generational wealth and the wealth gap are not a thing. We can talk about how not every white person has access to generational wealth. We can do that. But we can also talk about as we continue to have these overarching stereotypes about black people, the systemic methods that prevented an entire community, an entire demographic from reaching success, that is what this story is about. And that is what many of the stories on this podcast are gonna be about. Okay, I'm gonna move on because <laughs> it's a lot. Now, Bruce's Beach just has an old lifeguard station in a small park. As attention on the history of this land began to grow, Manhattan Beach decided to put up a plaque on the area commemorating the history in 2006, but it is extremely whitewashed and tamed. Remember George Peck, the city founder who was putting up no trespassing signs to the water and who hired cops to maintain that? He is portrayed as someone who welcomed the Bruces and their business. And the plaque doesn't do anything to acknowledge the violence or stress or explicit actions against the Bruces and the other black patrons at all. There's literally no accountability. Since last year, the attention grew so much that it led to a campaign for the descendants to get the land back. The descendants at the forefront of this movement publicly have been great-great-great-grandson Anthony Bruce and an indirect descendant, Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd, who was also a chief on the tribal council, and I'm going to butcher this, I apologize, of the Pocaset Wampanoag tribe of Poconocet Nation in Massachusetts. The activists pushing for action have been Kavan Ward at the organization Anti-Racist Movements Around the South Bay, or ARMS, who's also the founder of the organization Where Is My Land, which is now working to help families like the Bruces in their land justice efforts. Politically, State Senator Stephen Bradford, a Democrat, was leading efforts to pass a bill called SB 796, to have the land return to the Willa and Charles descendants. All these folks have been bringing attention to the story of Bruce's Beach. And you'd think with all that attention, the city of Manhattan Beach would be apologetic in some way. But nope, sometimes racism really doesn't die. 
And the funny thing is, these folks are trying so hard to act like they're not racist, but it's clear that they are. For example, it was Kavan Ward's efforts that led the city to create a Bruce Beach task force to determine next steps for the area. When Kavan went to interview for a role on the task force, they were less than enthusiastic and didn't end up appointing her. In the end, she says that showed her that they weren't going to really do anything because they didn't want to include someone with her demands. And I agree with that statement. Additionally, there were efforts to change the language on the plaque because it was just so embarrassingly incorrect and painted the city in an innocent light. Members of the city council pushed back on suggested new language that they thought made all white people look bad. And they pushed back against the involvement of the KKK and all that happened with Bruce Beach because in their eyes, the newspapers had just speculated that the KKK was involved and around. And the city pushed back saying that they should stick to the facts and not speculation. The city still refuses to issue a formal apology. Y'all, Manhattan Beach is 0.5% black. That isn't even a whole person. 0.5% black. Even John Oliver called out the city on a segment of his show last week tonight. If you're not racist, where are the black folks? But they just won't apologize. They did pass a resolution of acknowledgement and condemnation or whatever that is. Child, anyway, <laughs> SB 796 was passed on September 30th of this year, 2021 by Governor Gavin Newsom, who did apologize. This will remove current state restrictions on the land and formally allow the county to transfer the deeds to the parcels to the Bruce's descendants. Some Manhattan Beach residents are big mad. Let bygones be bygones. That wasn't us. That was a few ignorant folks 90 years ago. <laughs> okay, y'all. And guess what? This is the first instance of land reparations in the entire United States history. That means that this is the first time that land stolen from a black family has been returned to the descendants. Organizations like Where Is My Land want to keep this up, but they also say this isn't enough. The descendants also need compensation as this opportunity for generational wealth was taken away. Recall that Willa and Charles bought the property for $1,200. It's now valued in excess of $75 million. That's that California real estate. Can you believe that? So yeah, run them their coins. <laughs> and that's Bruce's Beach with the happy ending and potentially even happier ending in the future. I hope the descendants and their supporters never stop fighting for what they're owed and I hope they get it very soon. This has already been very tiring, I imagine. If you ever go to Manhattan Beach, and I hope you do to pay homage to Bruce's Beach, maybe don't spend any money until you get to a nice black owned place in LA. 
because trust and believe I'm not spending any money there when I go again. This story was upsetting, but this ending is so hopeful and is the beginning of something huge for the rest of the country. This is a historic precedent setting event and we should definitely applaud the efforts. Okay, after all that information about Bruce's beach, is your stomach hurting a bit? Maybe your blood pressure up a little bit? Yeah, I hear you. That's why it's time to talk about plant medicine. Just as a reminder and a disclaimer, I am not a doctor or an herbalist. Talk to a doctor or an herbalist or both for more information, especially if you're on any kind of medication. Medications and herbs can interact with one another and be harmful, so be careful. That being said, if something sounds interesting to you, check out the resources in the show notes to learn more about it. Today, we're going to talk about yarrow. Or is it yarrow? I'm going to call it yarrow. Unfortunately, this isn't in the Working the Roots book I mentioned last week. As many of those medicines are in the Southern tradition, and we are dealing with the West right now, but I've seen a lot of Black herbalists today engage with this plant. Yarrow is native to Southern California, as well as all of the Northern Hemisphere. It grows wild, but you can grow it yourself too. Its Latin name is Achillea millifolium, and it's also known as squirrel's tail, millifoil, warrior plant, and thousand leaf. Its flowers are often white and can be pink as well, and it has a noticeable finely divided feathery looking leaf pattern. It is an astringent, which means it draws together or constricts body tissues and can effectively stop the flow of blood or other secretions. It's a diuretic, which means it increases urination, reduces fluid retention, and aids kidneys. And, it, and it's an alterative, which induces change to aid detoxification and restore healthy functions. And it's a tonic, which strengthens and enlivens either the whole body or just specific organs. Now, all of those definitions, those I did get from Working the Roots. The website called Wild Foods and Medicines is where I'm getting most of my yarrow info. And I love that they say it's a plant that does what the body needs to do when it needs it, as long as you understand the need for balance. As with any medicine, you can totally overdo it. Yarrow can stop internal and external bleeding. I heard a really cool story from an herbalist about how they had cut themselves in their garden and they plucked a leaf from the yarrow that they were growing in their garden and they wrapped it around the cut and that immediately stopped the bleeding. I just think that's so cool. It can also thin the blood, stimulate and aid digestion, fight infection by stimulating sweating and lowering fevers. It can ease menstruation by initiating flow or slowing excessive flow. 
It can heal wind and sun damage on the skin. So as you can see, there's a lot of like, it can do this and it can do that. Push and pull opposites, which is so cool. You just have to use it in the right ways. One way that you can use it is by making a tea. The suggested dosage, according to the website, is one tablespoon of chopped flowers or leaves per cup of boiled water. You would steep it for 10 to 15 minutes and drink up to three cups a day. You can also take it as a tincture. I'm gonna try to do better about telling you how to take these medicines. But again, use caution. If you're into the woo like me, you may have heard of yarrow being used in flower essences as well. And flower essences are just tinctures that you take to absorb the essence of a flower in the way that you need to be supported. I know that that sounds a little bit out there. I once took pink yarrow flower essence to help me build emotional boundaries that I need as an empath. Yarrow also has a really pleasant smell. So people will use the essential oils and just kind of enjoy that, that very pleasant herbal smell. There's so much more, but carefully explore yourself. Do everything in moderation with this plant and with any plant, if you do anything at all. Are you still here? Did you really stay till the end? <laughs> I hope you thought it was worth it. Again, if you are from any of the places I spotlight, know any good stories, have any comments or questions, share them with me via email at unsettledlivespod at gmail.com or the Unsettled Lives Pod Instagram page. You can also share your reactions to these stories and how you felt learning something new. Happy winter solstice, happy holidays. Talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.